Good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll be reading together John chapter 2. Today we're in John chapter 2. I'm using the New American Standard Bible. I believe we're in our seventh week in this study. And what I see in the Gospel of John, if you're not familiar with it, that in chapter 1, we really answer the question, who is Jesus? And what we saw together is that Jesus is 14 things. And then what I see in the Gospel is that from chapter 2 to the end of the book, it is proving those 14 items. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go to John chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water so that they would be filled to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now. And take it to the headmaster. And they took it to him. Now when the headmaster tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the headmaster called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, he then serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of a science Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Amen. Thank you. Uh, before we really get started, I'd like to recognize the fathers in the room, both physical fathers and spiritual fathers. Uh, I came across a couple of uh, funny quotes on fatherhood. Uh, one of them says this, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant. I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> Having children is like living in a frat house. <laughs> Nobody sleeps, everything is broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. <laughs> Maybe that's just my home. Uh, anyways. But this week I came across an article that really summarizes a father's eight roles as described in the Bible. I thought it was great. It says, number one, fathers lead families. In the Bible, God often charges men to be responsible for leading their households in devotion to God. Number two, fathers protect. They not only lead, but they guard. Three, fathers are examples. A father who leaves a good example is an irreplaceable asset to the lives of his children. Number four, fathers are guides, meant to give wisdom to their kids. Number five, fathers give stabilities. stability. Fathers are the backbone to their family. Number six, fathers are loving. Nothing can replace a dad's love. Number seven, fathers take pride in their children. Dads are invested in their kids. And number eight, fathers reflect God's unique love. They show us what it's like to receive love from God. Thank you to all the men in the room, and thank you for your love and the example that you set for us. Today we're in John chapter 2. As I mentioned in the, earlier in the service, we are in our seventh week in this study of this gospel. But today I'd like to discuss with you trust. 
The question I'm answering today is, can we or can I really trust Jesus? Perhaps now more than ever, we need a reminder that we can trust God. But first, allow me to illustrate trust. I hide things sometimes up on stage. Okay, what is this? Let me ask that question. What is this? Okay, so the question I have for you is, would you sit on this? I mean, probably, but why? You've never sat on this probably particular stool before. Why would you believe and trust in this enough to sit down on it? For two reasons, right? Well, number one, it looks the part. It looks well made. And then number two, probably you may have seen other people sit on the stool. Therefore, you can trust the stool. Now, if you're still skeptical, if you have stoolophobia or something, you would probably get a friend to sit on the stool before you just in case you're a bit skeptical. So the appearance and the reputation of this stool would allow you to believe and to trust in it. Why should you trust Jesus? 2,000 years later, after he has lived, why should we as Christians trust Jesus? What evidence do we have that he is trustworthy? Perhaps now more than ever, we need a reminder that we can trust God. In a time of just strangeness when there are no sports being played, when the Atlanta Braves are not shown on TBS, yes, Barbara, when football in the fall might be delayed. Perhaps now more than ever, we need a reminder that we can trust God. In times of great fear and uncertainty, in times when some people believe the coronavirus, COVID, is either the Antichrist and some people think it's a hoax, in times we are, that we are burning down buildings, in a time where our culture is redefining marriage and gender, in this time, in this season of chaos, we need a reminder that we can trust God. But if you search down deep into your heart and into your soul, we all struggle with the thought that we can truly trust God, that deep down in our soul, in our being, that we have this chest in our soul, that we place things that we really don't want to surrender, that we really don't want to trust God with. And myself is included in that. I would say that trusting God is perhaps the most difficult part of the Christian life because we can't see, taste, or touch Him. And the issue of trust is a central conflict that I see in John chapter 2. Because if we take on the eyes, if we put on the shoes of the disciples, if we see it through their eyes, then they are skeptical of this man named Jesus. They have followed him in John chapter 1, and they are hoping that Jesus is all that they dreamed he had to be. Then in John chapter 1, we see 14 things that Jesus is, and then in John chapter 2, they are a bit skeptical. Because here are Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and the unnamed disciple, and they are hopeful for who he may be. Some of them have walked away from a family business. Two of them have walked away from their former mentor, John the Baptist, to follow a man that looks the part, but they're not sure is the part. They hope that this man named Jesus is the Messiah. They hope that he is the Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. They hope that Jesus is Rabbi, the teacher, the one to unfold to them the meaning of the Scripture. They hope that this Jesus is the Son of God. And they hope that Jesus is the King. 
If you notice in your Bible, in the Gospel of John, that they follow in chapter 1, but they do not believe, that word believe is used in chapter 2, verse 11. They are not fully convinced when the wedding in Cana begins. Now, if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open those in a very quick but very important rabbit trail. I'm going to hop off the train real quick and jump on something kind of ancillary, but it's very important. The wedding of Cana has many different interpretations, depending on who you are. There are two main different types of interpretation. Number one, people, some people take it to mean allegory, that it's a giant metaphor, and some people, like myself, take it more literal. Some people think that the wedding of Cana represents the picture of the church being the bride of Christ. Now that makes for a great sermon, but based on the context of the passage, I'm not sure that we can take this to be an allegory. Some preachers that I read in commentaries, they take this passage to mean that the blood of Christ is sufficient, is good, as the headmaster says, but I'm still not convinced. What I want you to do today is I want you to come with me on a journey. I want you to see the story through the eyes of the disciples. If the goal of hermeneus, if the goal of interpreting the scripture is to understand the author's original intent, then we must see the passage through the eyes of the characters. And through the eyes of the disciples, we will interpret it together. But first, I want you to notice with me the setting of our story in John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says this, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now verses 1 and 2 are packed with setting, as we would say, but I really only want to point out three different elements of setting. First, I want you to notice the first phrase. It says, on the third day. Now, there's a lot of disagreements on kind of what that phrase means, but I take it to mean, along with some scholars, that it is the third day of the wedding feast. In this culture, Jewish weddings were a very big deal, okay? That on the first, the first part of a wedding was a wedding ceremony, and usually ended with consummation. And then the following week was a wedding feast, where basically it was a giant party that we would, they would celebrate the wedding. Now, I'm just going to say this, that we think our weddings today are very expensive, if you've ever seen that show, say, Yes to the Dress, these women spend up to, you know, $25,000 on a wedding dress. Now, we think it's expensive in today's culture. Could you imagine feeding people for seven days? I'm just saying, it would bankrupt the Bradshaw clan. I got two daughters, okay. But they, they're in the midst of the third day of seven. And then notice the second piece of setting. It says, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Let's not skip that part. Cana, where is Cana? Cana is a small town in Galilee. And it is only eight miles or so from the town of Nazareth. What is significant about the town of Nazareth? It is where Jesus grew up. So clo- due to the close proximity, due to that Jesus is there, and the fact that Jesus' own mother is present and intervenes on behalf of the bridal party or the wedding party, it tells me something. It tells me that this wedding is hosted by either a family or close friend of Jesus and Mary. And then notice the third piece of setting in verse 2. Who does Jesus bring with him? We oftentimes take this detail for granted, but Jesus brings his disciples. That in the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus is beginning to build the relationship of trust with his disciples 
But his disciples are still skeptical. They want Jesus to be all that they hope him to be, but they're not completely sure. They haven't fully committed themselves to believing in him. And then notice the story. Notice how Jesus begins to prove himself to be trustworthy. The first point is in verse 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. My question I'm answering today is, can I trust Jesus? And my first point is yes, because others trust Jesus. Who trusts Jesus in verse 3? To solve the problem of running out of wine. His own mother. The very person that trusts, that knows Jesus best comes to Jesus and trusts him to solve this issue and to alleviate this family friend from embarrassments. Now, I could not even imagine having Jesus as my child or my sibling. I mean, you could not win, okay? I mean, could you imagine being a sibling and Mary say, well, just, you know, James, just be more like your brother Jesus. And we have very little evidence of Jesus' childhood. We have very little evidence of Jesus actually performing miracles in Mary's home. Mary, maybe Mary forgot sour cream at the grocery store, and Jesus would just go, there it is. But we don't know. But the fact that Jesus' that Jesus's mother approaches him for a miracle tells me something very profound. That she trusts him. That she knows that he is special, that he is different, that he is able. She knows that he is able and he is trustworthy. And through the eyes of the disciples, the fact that the disciple, that the Jesus, the Mary's, excuse me, that Jesus' mother Mary would trust him, if I was the disciple, would cause me to trust in him as well. Perhaps this is the greatest assurance of trust. It is very difficult to trust Jesus. It's very difficult to trust somebody that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. But just look around you. If there's a circumstance that comes up in your life, if there's a trial or temptation or struggle, just look around you to the testimony of other believers. Friends, I have lived life with many of you for some 25 years. I know the roads that you have walked, the trials and the temptations that you have faced, and the fact that some of you have been walking with the Lord for some 65 years confirms to me that Jesus is trustworthy. I say this to myself. You know, if they can face this, if they can walk through this trial or temptation, and they can still walk with Jesus some 65 years, then I can trust Jesus. That's what I see through the eyes of the disciples. They're sitting there at the table with Jesus, and they see Jesus' own mother, the person that knows him best. And that if she trusts Jesus, then the disciples themselves can trust Jesus. So we see the first reason that we can trust Jesus in verse 3, and then notice the second reason in verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to his mother, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Can we trust Jesus? Yes, because, point number one, others trust him. And point number two, because he listens. Now, in our culture, 2,000 years later, we find Jesus' response to Mary quite demeaning. 
We find his response in verse 4 that, woman, what does that have to do with us? We find that to be disrespectful. But nothing could be further from the truth. Every commentary I read this week, every one of them said the exact same thing, that in the original language, that this is not a phrase of disrespect, but it's actually one of respect. But what Jesus is doing in verse 3, he's actually distancing himself from the authority of his mother. And he says to her that his time has not yet come. And what I find amazing about that response is that Jesus knows that his time has not yet come to manifest, to reveal himself fully. But despite it, he still listens to his mother and he responds. If Jesus is willing to listen to her through the eyes of the disciples, then Jesus is willing to listen to them and he is worthy of trust. But let's just be real. Point number two is one of the most difficult points that we can struggle with, is that we oftentimes are not convinced that Jesus is listening, that God is listening. That all of us, deep down in our hearts, in the treasure troves, our mind and soul, that we are oftentimes convinced that Jesus or that God is not listening. That the prayers that we ascend to the very throne room of God are found in Jesus' email called the junk mail pile. That we oftentimes are convinced because that we look around us and we do not see any answers to prayer. That we are convinced that God ignores or has forgotten our prayers. But nothing could be further from the truth. We oftentimes await answers to our prayers and that we are convinced that God is deaf, that God is sticking his fingers in our in his ears. And this struggle that we have, even in today's culture, is nothing new. In fact, the struggle with if God is deaf is not a recent issue. It goes back some 3,000 years ago. If you are familiar with the Psalms, like I am, it's... You know of the prayers of David himself, a man after God's own art, and he is sitting there struggling with his enemies surrounding him, and he's struggling to understand if God is even deaf. This comes in Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. We all feel like that at times. That God is deaf, that God is ignoring our prayers, but nothing could be further from the truth. God is not deaf. God hears our prayers. He sees the hurt in our soul. He hears the cry of our hearts, and he is arranging the events of our life for your good. Romans 8.28 says this, but God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. No matter what the world says, no matter what your conscience says, no matter what your flesh says, that God listens to our prayers and he hears our pleas. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12? It says, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right and his ears are open to their prayer. God listens to our, our prayers because they come into the very throne room of God. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, says this, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firm to what we believe. This high priest, Jesus Christ of ours, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us in a time of need. 
Friends, God is not deaf. He hears our prayers. He sees the hurt of our soul. He hears the cries of our heart. And he is arranging the events of our life for our good. Jesus is trustworthy. Because he listens, because others trust him. But then notice the rest of the story in verse 6 through 12. Now there were six stone pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And they said to him, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they came, so they took it to him when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Can I trust Jesus? My third point today is he can, yes, because he can perform the miraculous. As I mentioned from the very beginning, what I want you to do when you read this passage from here on out, I want you to put on the shoes of the disciples. They're sitting there, and they have followed in chapter 1. They've walked away from a family business, walked away from the mentor called John the Baptist, but they have not fully believed, found in verse 11. They're still a little bit skeptical of this Jesus guy. So they're sitting there at the table, and they see Mary, his mother, trust him. Then they see that the fact that he listens to the pleas of his own mother. But think about the situation. Jesus still hasn't proven anything. He hasn't proven that he is the Son of God, that he is the very embodiment of the glory and grace of the Lord. He hasn't proven that he is truly trustworthy. So how does he prove himself? How does he prove that he is priest, that he is king, and that he is prophet? He proves it by doing the miraculous, by turning water into wine, because you will see the result of this miracle in verse 11 and 12. Now, most Bible preachers choose to focus on the head waiter's reaction to the wine. That it was good or that it was best. And that you could talk about this and you can unpack it, but I think that a lot of preachers miss the best part of the story. The best part of the story, in my opinion, is not the head waiter's reaction to the wine, but the faith of the servants. The faith of the servants is astounding. Because think about them. They don't know Jesus from Adam. They don't know who he is, but they are on faith, trusting that this man named Jesus, that they are following his instructions, that they fill the purification darts to the brim, that they scoop out some wine and then they take it in front of the entire wedding feast to their master and they are probably secretly hoping that they do not embarrass the entire family. Now put yourself in the shoes of the servants. Just imagine the faith that it takes to follow the instructions of a man that they have never met. In my opinion, the servants are a picture of what faith to the disciples should be. That oftentimes, friends, that we do not have all the answers. Oftentimes our prayers remain unanswered. But despite it all, Jesus is still worthy of trust. He is still worthy of faith. He is worthy, not because of what I hope him or want him to be, but because of who he is. Jesus' conduct for you is not cloaked in wrath, but in love. 
And at the center of that love is a redemption for our soul. And that love has caused him to pay for our sin. And his character and his love and his essence and who he is, is what I and what we should believe in. We can trust Jesus because he listens, because he performs the miraculous. But then I want you to notice in point number three, I put a very strategic word in there. It is the word can, C-A-N. And oftentimes we let our mind get in the way of our faith. I am convinced even today that Jesus can and still does perform miracles. Let us not shrink our faith to doubt its possibility. Because Jesus as our creator, he has knit us together. He knows our DNA and our creator God can then reshape that DNA to perform miracles. It is not outside the realm of possibility that Jesus even today, 2,000 years later, can perform the miraculous. Let us not chalk it up to something that just happened. Let us remember, let's put a marker in the sand. For example, there's a family that I know very well. They have had three children have cancer. Three of their children have had cancer. One of their children over a year ago was pronounced basically dead on a hospital bed. And the only reason that young man is still alive today is because of CPR, the nurses. But his diagnosis was no better. Well, a year later, that young man is still alive. He is off that hospital bed. His medicine is working, that his cancer has been reduced. Now, will he be fully healed? I do not know. But the fact that that young man still lives, to me, is a miracle. Because by all scientific purposes, by all information, that young man should have been gone more than a year ago. Friends, let us not shrink our faith. Beyond miracles, but let us have the faith that Jesus can and still does perform them. But let us be vulnerable for just a second. We have all ascended prayers to the throne room of God. And we all have these prayers stand before God and we're waiting for a miracle, waiting for an answer. But oftentimes answers do not come. You know, I think about my own family. I won't talk about it much, but many of you, whenever I miss a Sunday morning, you probably know what's going on. Either there's some, either he's in the emergency room again with his child, or he's on vacation. It's pretty much the two scenarios I'm gone. Okay. My wife and I, as you know, our story, we have lost a child some five years ago, and then the next two children suffer from the very ailment that cost the life of my oldest child. Laurel and I are three for three with children that have seizures. We are batting a thousand, they would say. And daily we pray for healing. We pray for a miracle. I know many of you do as well. And I believe even today that he can heal my children. But even if he decides not to, what does the scripture say? That I know somehow, some way, that God is working out all things for his glory and his good. Since you can trust Jesus in the midst of the trials and temptations of life, I can trust Jesus. Since I know that Jesus listens to our prayers, then I can trust Jesus. And since I know that Jesus is able to perform the miraculous, then I can trust Jesus. 
But let us not gloss over the results. I want you to notice in verse 11 and 12, I want you to notice the two results of Jesus' first miracle. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. What is the result of his first miracle of turning the water into wine? Point not, well, the first result of his miracle is that he manifested his glory. That word manifest right there literally means to reveal. That Jesus revealed the very glory of God through his miracle. And what does it confirm? That Jesus is the Son of God. That he is their King. That he is their teacher. That he is the very embodiment of God's glory. Really, John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 fulfills John chapter 1 verse 14. That he is the embodiment of the glory of God. But result number 2, it says that his disciples believed in him. In this moment, after, as a consequence or as a result of the miracle in Cana, his disciples are no longer skeptical that Jesus is the real deal, but they have placed their faith in him. Jesus is worthy of our trust and of our faith. Despite what the world will tell you, despite what the circumstances of your life will tell you, despite what the flesh screams in your ear and your enemy tries to convince you otherwise, that Jesus is worthy of our trust and of our faith. My hope today is that the result that happened in the life of the disciples happens in your life. You know, we are mistaken in this life. We are mistaken as Christians that we think that faith is only necessary for salvation. But faith is also necessary for sanctification. It is also necessary for growing in our faith. So my question for you, for Christians here today, is really my first question, is what is one thing that causes you to doubt God's trustworthiness? What is the cry of your heart that David examples in Psalm chapter 22? What is something that you pray for on a continual basis? That you feel that God has abandoned you, that God has ignored, that God keeps throwing in the junk email folder of his mind and of his presence. That I guarantee you that there is a hope, that there is a dream, that there is a struggle or a temptation. That we doubt. That we say, Lord, I trust you, but... This one little thing. There's something in my life, uh, maybe you're like me, there's a lot of things that you struggle to trust God with. Um, but there's something quite recently, in the last month or so, that has just been bothering me. And this week, you know, you, you, have to, you try to practice what you preach as a preacher. I'm definitely an imperfect human being. Go talk to my family about that one. Um... But I just, I saw this thing, this thing that was bothering me, this struggle in my life. And, you know, as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm sitting there, Lord, if I'm asking my people to trust you, and in the midst of all of their doubt and all their insecurities and their illnesses and struggles, then Lord, I have to trust you too. So what I figured out was, is I, I took this thing that I'm struggling with and I gave it to the Lord and man, instantaneously what happened? I felt better. But then after I slept it off, what did I try to do? I tried to 
Friends, when you trust the Lord, just let him have it. Let it go. Don't bring it back. Because if we, if we try to control everything in our life, we will go absolutely mad. Can I get an amen to that one? No matter what your struggle is, no matter the doubts and skepticism, maybe an illness, the reality is, is that God may not take it away. He may not grant you what you wish. But circumstances do not change our status with God. God is still worthy. He's still worthy of our trust. He is still good. He is still great. He is still pure. He is still love. And He is still our Creator. Despite our worries and unanswered prayers, seemingly, God is still worthy of our trust. So my commission to you is to trust. Take that item. Take that thing that you doubt, that you struggle with, and just cut it loose. Give it to the Lord, and don't do this thing like I was trying to do. Don't try to pull it back. Just let it go and experience or know His grace and His love. Before I close, I do this every week. Some of you are the disciples in chapter 1. Some of you have perhaps followed Jesus to an extent. But I would imagine many of you today are still a little bit skeptical of who Jesus really is. And it causes you not to believe. To tell you a quick story, uh, this past week my wife and I and family went up to Townsend, Tennessee to the Great Smoky Mountains. Love that place. Okay. And uh, we decided to get a little bit of R&R, but every time I do a long car drive, what do I do? I always listen to a book on Audible. So what I did this week is I listened to a systematic theology book. I know, that is awesome. I'm sure it's only... Um, all the way there and all the way back, I listened to an awesome systematic theology book. And yes, I am that nerdy, Okay. And what I found awesome about this book, he really said, every time you present the gospel, you should have three different elements. Number one, you must have your condition, and then the solution, and then the invitation. Our condition before God is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that for the wages of sin is death. That because we sin, because we lie, cheat, and steal, it causes what? It causes our physical body to die, and it causes our soul to be dead. But the solution is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if we believe in Jesus, that we can be born again. That yes, our body will still pass away, but our soul can be made alive in Jesus Christ. If you have never been born again, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, if you do not know what it means to have your soul alive, then here is the invitation. Believe. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't be a good enough person. But that the gift of God is given to us by faith. And in past weeks, what I have done is I have given you the truth. And I've sent you home to go think about it. But then I realize, this week, I realize that we live in the most distracting culture in the world. Can I get a name into that one? It is so obnoxious. I can't go 30 seconds without getting a notification on my phone. No wonder people struggle to remember what happened last week or this morning. My invitation is this. I think here today that there's somebody that needs to believe in Jesus Christ that needs to be born again. Don't wait. What are you waiting for? Believe. 
in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, surrender to him and follow him the rest of your life. I would like to close this sermon on trust with the most famous verse on trust in the Bible. It says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from wisdom or evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Oh. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for those that are viewing online that are not able to be with us presently. I thank you for those that are here. Uh, I thank you for those that are serving that aren't in this room. Lord, our circumstances in our world would tell us otherwise. But what I see in the scripture and what I see in the lives of my fellow believers, I see that we worship a God that is sovereign but is trustworthy. And Lord, I just pray that we would stop stifling, that we stop trying to control every aspect of our life and that we would just surrender to you the hopes and the dreams and the fears of our life. And Lord, because you are trustworthy. Lord, I pray that we, that we would believe in you every day. And Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the faithfulness of this church. And Lord, I just pray you to continue to grant us wisdom and direction for the future. In Jesus' name.